So we've been talking about Gideon, and Gideon is someone who the Lord has taught me a lot about in the past. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what it is, but I, I really sense um, that this is a season. I thought the Lord said, you need to teach through Gideon and, and teach to yourself, preach to yourself. Now, I try to preach all my sermons. I really direct at me. I'm not sitting there thinking, oh, Chad's been bad gambling. We're going to talk about gambling or something. I mean, there's so many things we could point at different people. No, uh, that's not how we're supposed to preach. And so that's not what I do. I really preach on things that I sense the Lord is speaking to me personally uh, and that have application that way. I'm never thinking, you know, people think, oh, you're staring at me the whole time. No, I'm, I remember I don't have the best eyes. Uh, I actually have two new lenses in my eyes. I can actually see in the back row. But for many years, I couldn't practically see past the second row. So people say, oh, I'm sorry I was sleeping and I couldn't even see them. You know, I don't I didn't know you're sleeping. I can see you sleeping now. Uh, but I figure if we can't keep you awake, don't worry about it. You go ahead and sleep. We're going to do our best to keep you awake. We're not going to give you a hard time. So there's three parts of this lesson today. I mean, Gideon was raised up, and Gideon was not raised up because he was so great. In fact, he probably had more doubts and questions than almost anyone else in the Bible. In fact, God was so patient with him that even in this uh, morning section here in Judges chapter 7, God gave him even more help. He gave him another thing because he knew Gideon was afraid. Now again, I, I've said this many times, but I can't tell you, in my 20s, I used to teach these passages uh, in my 30s, in my 40s, and, and in my maybe 20s and early 30s, I used to be like, can you believe that Gideon needed all this encouragement, and he didn't just hear God and do it? The older I get, the more I get it. Yeah, I've, you know, I didn't realize how much God's been telling me, and I've been chickening out or whatever. I mean, it's not easy uh, in many ways, and yet it is so beautiful how patient God is and how willing God is to work with Gideon, despite the fact that he is amazingly flawed. And the older I get, the more I'm aware. I don't know that I'm any more flawed now than I always have been, but the older I get, the more aware I am. Now, part of that is that your children grow up and tell you. That helps. Uh, when your children grow up and tell you, they're like, oh, how did I miss that? Uh, that was sort of teasing. because. Yeah. But we do, we learn, we see, like, oh my goodness, that's me too. But I want you to be so encouraged this morning because in this process of walking with Jesus, God is incredibly faithful and he cares about you and he will meet you where you are. The main thing is use the faith that you have. Don't worry that you don't have Jackie's faith or this person's faith or this. You apply yourself in faith and obedience where you are. It will grow from there. All right? It'll grow. Uh, I hate to quote, what about Bob? But I think that's the movie where he says, baby steps, baby steps, all right? Just take the, just do, do, play your game. Don't try to play someone else's spiritual game. You play your game. So here we go. The first eight verses of the first point, uh, first section. Let's read the first eight verses and then we'll comment about it. Well, so Jerubbabel. Now, Jerubbabel is, remember, it's Baal will contend. Because when, he killed, when, when uh, Gideon went, and he tore down his father's idols, the people said, we're going to kill uh, the son of Joash, Gideon, because he tore down these idols. For, we're going to, in a sense, we're going to defend Baal's honor. And, and, and Joash says, wait a minute. If Baal's God, you don't need to be defending his honor. Let Baal take it. Baal will contend. So Zerubbabel means Baal will contend. All right? So that's the nickname that they gave him. They also give him the name Mr. Barley Cake, but we won't get to that. Uh, we'll get that later in the text today. So 
Jeroboam, that is Gideon, this is the New Living Translation, it makes it a little bit easier, and his army got up early and went as far as the spring of Herod. They're getting up and they're going to take uh, on the Amalekites, the, Midian, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the Bedouins. The armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the, near the hill of Morah. Now some people think this hill of Morah is a transcript error because they were at like the Gilboa or Gilead or they were at some other mountain. But the hill of Morah means the hill of teaching, the hill of instruction. And in many ways, it was a hill of instruction for Gideon. So it's quite possible that he's saying this metaphorically, that the mountain that they were on was a hill of instruction that the, that the, the Midianites were on because it was going to teach Gideon about faith and about God, uh, so that it was a hill of instruction. All right. Then the Lord said to Gideon, verse 2, you have too many warriors. Now I can tell you something. If you're fighting an army of 135,000 and you've got 32,000, you probably don't feel like you have too many. Did you know that God will strip things away until you have so little that you will know without a shadow of doubt that it's God who's working in and through you? Did you know that? It's because God loves us. So there's this testing, there's this trying. When God tests us, he does not test us to fail. He tests us to give opportunity to succeed with his grace, with his strength, and with his help. So here he is, here's, uh, here's Gideon, and he's saying, hey, uh, you got 32,000 going against 130, oh no, 133,000 or 35,000 versus 32,000. Oh no, you have way too many. I'm sure that Gideon was thinking, whoa, what, 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 wait, 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 wait. All right, so here we go. If I let you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they have saved themselves by their own strength. It is so amazing how many times I have been with people who have prayed and asked God for a miracle. When the miracle came, they basically said, well, I don't, how do I know that was God, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they take the credit, and they don't give God the credit, even though they knew that they couldn't do, the situation wasn't going to happen. They pray. I had a guy who prayed. It was in very bad shape with cancer. When he prayed and got healed... I think I was with him in the room when it happened, but whenever it happened, he refused to say it was God and basically said, well, like it was a, a, a coincidence. Not a good thing to do. Therefore, tell all the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of the 32,000, 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who are willing to fight. I want you to think about this. Here you are, 32,000, going against way stronger soldiers. They got camels, they're on horseback, I mean, not horseback, they're on camels. And I mean, at every level, the advantage was greatly due. Who could blame these people for wanting to go home? Humanly speaking, they were the smart ones, if you don't account for God and for what God says. And there's a whole lot of Christians that are with the 22. Because they're only taking account of the enemy and the situation based upon their own strength. And if that's the way you're going to live your life and make your decisions based upon your own strength, you're always going to be afraid and have to go home. I mean, Deuteronomy chapter 20 is the, is the chapter in the Bible that how do you go forth on holy war? All right, so if you, you're on a cool chapter this week in your devotions, read Deuteronomy chapter 20. It says things like, uh, if you've just been betrothed or if you're engaged to be married, don't go into a battle. You go home. Leave the, leave the soldier because your heart's someplace else. 
And God doesn't recriminate. It doesn't sound like it's a bad thing. Like, hey, of course, if you're engaged to be married and it's here for a battle, you're thinking about your spouse-to-be. You go on home. Uh, there's a number. If you, just, uh, if you just plowed your field, there's all these different things he says in the short chapter, Deuteronomy 20. And if you're in that situation, it's okay. You go home. Don't fight the battle. But the main thing is, make sure that your heart's in it. And it gives different categories why people don't have their heart in it. And then the last one is, if you're afraid, meaning if you haven't had a revelation of the goodness and the greatness of God, go on home because lack of faith and unbelief is contagious. Did you know that? Did you know that lack of faith is, un- is contagious? We've had battles through the years praying for the sick up here because it's not just a distraction. Some people aren't expecting anything to happen. That's unbelief. When we come on Sunday mornings for church and we're praying for the sick, some of us, we're expecting heaven and hell to change. We're coming with, uh, as someone said, uh, I forget where I heard it, uh, some sermon. The guy said, uh, oh, um, Father John uh, from Holy Faith. Uh, Father, um, the guy used to be at St. Augustine. Father with a G. Not Julian. Father, Julian's with a J. Gillespie. Father Gillespie did this fascinating sermon. One of the things he said was, uh, no, I forgot. <laughs> he said, oh, he was talking about a book about Beowulf. And I mean, obviously, I was like, man, this guy's a bright guy. He, he, but he said that this guy commenting on the pagans and the Christians of the day said, when they come to the liturgy and the Eucharist, they don't come with any unreasonable expectations. Listen, when we come to the Eucharist, we are coming with unreasonable expectations. We are expecting for your soul to be encouraged. We are expecting that you experience a revelation of God and his love so that your sins are and the power of them are broken. We're expecting that when you come that the demons flee. We're expecting a whole bunch of unreasonable expectations. And if we don't have unreasonable expectations, we're in the wrong place. You might as well have gone golfing. It's a beautiful day. Fishing. Hunting, although I don't know if you hunt on Sundays here. I hope not. But anyway, this is all about having unrealistic expectations. And, and faith is, is there, and the, the, the belief in God, and what God is leading us to is to believe in him. And it is not reasonable, according to the closed system of the natural order and world, to believe the things that God says, unless you know that the one who is outside of time in this world is also able to act within it. We're not deist. We don't think God just made the world and walked away. We believe that God made the world. He made time, but he is beyond time, but he can act within it. And he has done so through his word in the past, through his son, and he has continued to do so. I hope that you come with the most crazy, unrealistic expectations that when you come to the Eucharist, your marriage will be healed, your children will be healed, your addictions, uh, that's what you're coming for. When you come with that kind of faith, things happen. God is looking for a people who come with unrealistic expectation, not just based on bluffing or making stuff up, but based upon what he promises in his word. And I would suggest to you, far too little happens here because we don't have unreasonable expectations. Now, when you preach like that, in a sense, in the last 23 years, we had four different groups of people that left because to them it sounded crazy. God loved them. God bless them. He loved the people that left. He, he includes them at the end. But 22,000 people just couldn't get it. And God said, it's better for them to go than to get in the way for the great things I'm going to do. Isn't that cool? I mean, he didn't say, I'm writing them off. 
They're not really believers. They're not really my people. He didn't say anything. He just said, they got to get out of the way so that I can be glorified in the way I need to be glorified. Why does God need to get all the glory? Is he insecure? Why does God need to get all the glory? Because God is God. He is the only being in the universe that when he gets the glory, everything else gets ordered rightly. The value of everything else takes its fullest extent when it is for the glory of God, because God is the one who made everything. He is the creator ruler of this universe. So our highest position and state is when we glorify God. When we glorify ourselves, we make ourselves too small. When we join the chorus of, of, of nature and the echo of the universe and time, when we join that chorus and we, we glorify God properly, when God is rightly esteemed, everything else has its best day when we glorify God. Because he's the one being in the universe worthy of it. So he's not insecure. But if you give your greatest affection and love, the glory of your heart to anything less than, it's idolatry and it will let you down. It'll mess you up. It'll distort you because we become what we love. And if we become anything but God, we'll become less than what God intended us to be. So there's this beautiful thing going on. Their people are being tested. And the first test is the people who are afraid, who their revelation of the things of this earth are bigger than their revelation of belief and the things of the one who created the earth. Let them get out of the way. And God bless them. He hasn't given up on them. He invites them back. Do you know there were times I was in services when the Holy Spirit was moving and I didn't know the difference between God and the devil and I almost ran out? Meaning I got out, I just didn't run because I didn't want to get psyched. I mean, I got out. I was like, this is scary. This is freaky. People are praying in tongues. I was scared to death. I didn't know the difference between God and the devil. I'm embarrassed to tell you, but I didn't. So when I could tell something else was going on bigger than me, I thought, this is bad. I just, I was judgmental. I said, this is bad. I never prayed about it. I just like, this is weird. I'm getting out of here. I did it many times. I've been part of the 22,000, maybe not 22,000 times, but a lot of times. God didn't give up on me. He's not giving up on anybody. Just, hey, there's some bad, when you're in the battle, you've got to have people who know and are willing to know. It's a different kind of thing. Everybody gets to jump in at the end. You'll see that. All right, but in the battle, you got to be there. Listen, some of you, you're hanging out with people and talking to people about things and when you do that with people who don't have faith, your faith is being sapped. There's things in which you have to have a holy silence where you know, if I mention this to my mom or my dad or my friends or my brother, if I mention them, they're not going to understand and it will actually screw you up spiritually. You just got to have a holy silence. You don't have to tell everybody everything. And when you're dealing with a sickness or a problem that requires faith in the living God, don't be dissipating your faith by interacting with people who you know don't have the maturity to get it. I got friends, wonderful Christian people who don't get demons. I'm not going to talk about demons with them. They're just going to think I'm weird and it's going to make me feel bad. What's the point? That's okay. I got friends, that, wonderful people who don't know and understand about healing, haven't seen something. Like, okay. I've been where they are. They still love Jesus. They're coming. God's not giving up, but I'm not, neither am I going to get entangled with that and be brought down. There's a time and a need for a holy silence. We need, that's why, you see, do you know what Jesus, how did Jesus say this? Did someone hear it already? Don't throw your pearls before swine. What it means is, don't take the valuable things for people who can't get it. It's, they're not swine in the sense that uh, they're going to hell or something. The point is, there are people who don't yet understand, 
If you tell them things that are going to overmatch them, they are going to judge falsely the kingdom things, and they're going to take the viable things and destroy them uh, because a swine doesn't know the difference between a, a pebble and a, or whatever he's in, corn and a, and a pearl, and they'll, they'll destroy the viable things. The first test is, is the people without faith had to get out of the way. Second thing is, he says, let's see how they drink. This appears to be a completely random act. I have to say, I was excited about studying this week on this text because I was sure that I was going to do a little bit extra study and I was going to find out why there were these two groups of people. And the two groups of people uh, in these verses, he says, you have to have too many warriors with you. If I let you follow the Midianites, the Israelites will be to me uh, that they that say, they'll think that they say themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, that whoever is timid and afraid may leave this monument and mountain and go home. So 22,000 went home, leaving only 10,000. Now, verse 4, but the Lord told Gideon, there are still too many. Listen, they had, there were less than 1% of their enemy. But God. Bring them down to the spring and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, divide the men into two groups, and one group that will uh, cut water in their hands and let it lap in their tongues like dogs, and the other put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Only 300 men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. Now, <clears throat> I thought there's going to be this great spiritual meaning. I'm going to discover it. I'm going to read, and I'm going to find out that these people were people of more faith, or these people were looking at the enemy. Then you're like, no, the enemy was four miles away. They weren't looking at the enemy. There's no, there is no reason, apparently, other than God was looking for a smaller number. He just did it with 300. He could have, so, so meaning, it doesn't appear that the people, I, I will say this, have you ever drank from a stream? I have. I don't, can't imagine anybody going down on their knees. I mean, both groups go on their knees, then one group goes down on their hands or their shoulders and puts their mouth in the stream and drinks that way. Maybe I got a big nose. I just can't imagine how you don't suffocate. I don't see how you do that. But uh, the vast majority of people just sort of put their head down and drank that way. But then there was these 300 oddballs. They weren't braver. They didn't have any more faith. They weren't gooder. Not a real word. Just letting you know. I've been hanging out with Dion, so you're just gooder. I, there was no reason except for God wanted a small group to magnify himself so they'd understand the important thing is notice God's with us. It's not just the wind. It's that the wind is because God's with us. Because if God's with us with the Midianites, he'll be with us in our marriage and our children and our sickness and our disease. That's the key. So some went on their knees and they did like this and they drank out of their hands. And it's funny, the Bible describes those as licking like dogs. In my mind, that's more culture, but yeah, hey, I'm a hillbilly. What do you know? So the Bible says that's like that. So they narrowed it from 10,000 to 300 in that way. So there's the testing of faith. God had two tests. Now we find the encouragement of faith, and let's look from verses 9 to 15a. That night the Lord said, Get up, get down into the midnight camp, for I have given you victory over them. I mean, what an incredible word. I've given you victory over them. I've had some words. I'm waiting for them. I'm waiting for him. I got a word in December before I knew how sick I would be in my stomach. God told me, don't worry about it. Your stomach's going to be fine. It is over a year from when it started, and I'm still not healed. But God is my healer. I don't know what he's teaching me exactly. I'm trying to learn and trying to be a good sport and try to repent. I'm trying to do everything I can do. But I will tell you this. One of the good things is 
I heard the Lord say to me, don't worry about your stomach, I'm going to heal you. So uh, I thought he had already healed me. I was like, that's interesting to say, yeah, you're going to heal me. I didn't know something was going to go on for a year. Now I know why he said it. But it was so distinct that I didn't forget. It has given me great comfort, even though it's been a hassle. All right? So get up, go down into the community I camp, for I've given you victory over them. But if you are afraid to attack. Now, he knew Gideon was still afraid after all those testing and different things and the fleece and God in his patience. I mean, first of all, he got rid of all the people that are afraid. Except for who? Gideon. Gideon was afraid. Okay? Gideon was afraid. God still used Gideon, and he understood. Do you understand that most leaders in the kingdom of God are example problems? Most pastors, most priests, they have as many troubles as anybody else, if not more. The reason that they're leaders is that God is expecting to let God heal them, meaning we're supposed to go every day and try to be better husbands and fathers, uh, citizens, people, uh, know the Lord better, and, and in the going and the repenting and the learning and the praying, we're supposed to learn, oh, this is what the Bible is saying, and this is how you do it, now I can tell somebody else. I thought you become a pastor, and then you're the expert, and you just know everything. I don't know why, you know, like saying, here's a book on construction, now you'll know how to make a house. That, you know, some people can watch a YouTube video and do stuff. I can't. I need someone to hold my hand and help me. I'm slow. Most leaders, I mean, I say that because I would say all. I just can't speak for everyone. But I've never met one that, that they didn't have their own struggles and things, and God was teaching them to, be a ta to teach other people. That's why leaders, leaders are just hopefully, not always for many of you, hopefully the priest, the preacher is one step ahead, at least one step ahead. For some of you, you've been praying for your priest like me, and you're a few steps ahead. Oh, that's okay. Then you're part of the solution, and you're praying them in. This church has had a number of young priests of the years, and this church has had a real calling and a destiny to incubate and to raise up good priests. We have put out some incredible priests. But this congregation has understood that, not just in words. They've understood how to love and to train and to, and to allow people who aren't as spiritually mature, but who have the gifts to operate and to respect people, even if some of you are far more mature. Praise the Lord. What a grace that, and what a great need there is. This is what's going on here. So Gideon has fear, and so the, all the other ones that fear are gone, but Gideon's still there. And then he says, but if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp and with your servant. He knew he wouldn't want to go by himself. Maybe he was afraid of the dark too. Listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you will be greatly encouraged. God encouraged him along the way, even though he was imperfect. Do you see the grace for you? God is not expecting you to have it all together and be perfect. He's expecting you to hear him and to obey him, to take those baby steps and step out. Okay, he understands. I mean, he anticipated Gideon's need for encouragement before Gideon even voiced it. So Gideon took Purah and went down to the edge of the enemy camp. The armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east had settled in the valley like a swarm of locusts. Their camels were like grains of sand on the seashore. Too many to count. Gideon crept up just as a man was telling his companion about a dream. I don't know about you, but I've had dreams that were so real, when I woke up, I still couldn't shake it. So yeah, good dreams and bad dreams. It's so real. I, I woke up the morning that my, uh, 
my grandmother died. When my mother called me, I knew one of them, either because my grandmother and my grandfather were sick. I, I didn't know which one, but I had a dream that was so troubling. When my mother called at six, I knew at four o'clock I had that dream, and I knew one of them. I said, which one of them died? She said, how do you know? I said, well, I had this dream. I know one of these people I love so much, they died. Which one? She said, your grandmother. Some other things happened, but there you go for that. I had this dream, the man said, and in my dream, a loaf of barley. This is getting his, we got some of these here, Mr. Barley Loaf. Okay? How about if you win a beauty contest and they call you Mr. You know, Mr. World, Mr. Muscles. Instead, getting his Mr. Barley Loaf. And barley was the cheapest grain. So imagine this little crummy little thing, like a slider bun. Not even a full hamburger bun. He's got this dream, and they got all these warriors and soldiers. They've never lost any battles. And all of a sudden, he sees this little barley cake coming down the hill, and it runs into their tent and knocks it all out. And it's so powerful, even though it's a silly dream, it's so powerful and it's so real, he feels the terror in it. And his friend says, yeah, that's Gideon. Look, look what it says. The man said, I had this dream, my dream, loaf of barley loaf came down, tumbling down into the Midianite camp. It hit a tent, turned it over, and knocked it flat. His companion answered, imagine the Holy Spirit's bringing this holy terror upon them. Your dream can only mean one thing. God has given Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite victory over Midian and all its allies. They could feel the terror that only the Holy Spirit... I have been places where the conviction of God was coming and there was holy terror. Do you know, in the first great awakening with Jonathan Edwards, it was common. People would be in a sermon, and back then they just read everything monotone. So Edwards had this very... You know, I mean, not that my sermons are any good, but it's not a particularly exciting sermon. It's uh, uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Google it. You're like, this is kind of depressing. I mean, it's, you know, hell's bad. Yeah, I know that. But it doesn't grip you. When he read that sermon monotone, the Holy Spirit and the conviction of what hell is like and the torment to come was so great that people literally got out of their skin. I mean, they just, I mean, they collapsed. And, and for like 30 years, a revival hit this country because people saw that the holy God, that people had not been living in obedience to the holy God. They had known in their generations God, but they had turned far from God and the conviction of sin and the reality of the enemy and hell were so profound, it would be like having panic attacks. I mean, they just, I mean, absolutely didn't know what to do. Now, I hate to laugh, but you know, in those awakening, in the second great awakening, when people came, they would have them sit in the morning bench, would be the front of the church. Some of the Methodists and other groups have still done this. Some of you are familiar with this. They'd have you sit there for the week of revival. So, so here's this person completely freaking out, experiencing the conviction of sin, knowing that Jesus is the Savior, and Edwards or John, John Wesley later and Sim, uh, uh, Whitfield, they would see, and lots of others, they would see them and say, you're not ready yet. You know, you've only seen this much of hell. You've got to see this much if you're going to really grow and change. So they'd have them just absolute in terror, sometimes for days, and then they say, okay, you're ready. You get it. You've had this revelation, and, and the love of Jesus, now it's like, it's like you've been so broken open, now the love of Jesus is going to come and completely just uh, uh, restore you and redeem you and save you, and, and you're going to be completely different. 
in a certain way, that kind of holy terror, although without the remedy being offered, came upon the Midianites uh, in the story this morning. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed and worshipped. Listen, that's the key. Worship before warfare. He got the revelation, got him in town, but when he saw even the Midianites knew it. And did you know that the enemy knows your name? Did you know that? The enemy knows your name. I can't tell you how many times I've been in Vista and other places with mentally ill people. When I walk in the door, whole groups of people turn around and they can't hear me. They cannot see me. I mean, there's nothing about the door. I mean, there's no, they can tell when the people of God are coming. Some longing for that and some not happy, agitated and upset. I don't really like going because it creates a stir. I don't like the negative. I'm not afraid of it, but I don't like it. The enemy knows. The enemy knows that you're the people of God. And sometimes on the inside we're afraid, but God is with us. And we comfort ourselves uh, with that reality. All right. He returned to Israelite camp and said, Get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. Here's the thing. God honored his faith. It was a very imperfect faith that Gideon had. Maybe your faith is imperfect, but God honored it. Look here. And we finish up with this part. Here we go. Uh, for the Lord has given you victory. He, verse 16, he divided the 300 men into three groups, gave each man a ram's horn, which is a shofar, a trumpet, and a clay jar with a torch in it. Then he said to them, keep your eyes on me. Now the whole time he's like, how do I know? What about me? Blah, blah, blah. Now it's, as the Holy Spirit's come upon him, he says, keep. Like Paul said, well, obey me as I follow Christ. Watch me, follow me as I follow Christ. The one who was the example problem has now turned into the example. Praise the Lord. When I came to the edge of the camp, just do as I do. And as soon as I and those with me blow the ram's horns, blow your horns too, all around the entire camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. It was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the midnight camp. Suddenly, they blew the ram's horns and broke their clay jars. Then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. They held the blazing torches in their left hands and the horns in the right hands, and they all shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each man stood in his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in panic. Ever seen people rush around in panic? I've been in some earthquakes. I've seen it happen. I was down in Colombia. We were eating trout at a trout restaurant in a beautiful place outside of Bogota. And when the earthquake started hitting, people were getting up from their tables and running into each other trying to get away. shouting as they ran to escape. When the 300 Israelites blew the ram's horn, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. Those who were not killed fled to the place as far as way as and near the border of near 23. Then Gideon, the 22,000, they, they weren't ready for this day, and, and the 10,000, only 300. But God didn't forget them. They weren't, they weren't uh, hated or rejected. I guarantee after this, their faith had grown quite a bit. But now he calls them and says, now you call and you join in. We're chasing them now. Go get them now. Now, cut them off at the pass. There's the low places of the Jordan River. You go get them now. Cut them off now. Be part of the victory now. You get to enjoy it. And so the story ends as he calls the different tribes, and they go and they participate in the mop-up of this great victory. Now, now, what I want for you is, first of all, we have to be, I mean, Gideon says, 
for the Lord and for Gideon. He gives them this crazy thing. Doesn't that sound presumptuous? Do you know that when people, first of all, there's a whole lot of people, particularly in the charismatic and Pentecostal part of the church, and they're bluffing. They're bluffing. They tell you to live in faith, and they tell you what to do, but they're living off of someone else's testimony. They don't, the Lord never told them what they're saying. When Susan and I went through her cancer, and I say that I was like in the wreck. I mean, obviously it was, it was her body. And all we had people telling us, do this and do that, and oh, I can't believe you don't have faith because you're talking to the doctor. I mean, everyone in the world. I can't tell you, don't be one of those people, by the way. Don't tell other people how to fight their battles unless God gave you a really clear word. And if you haven't been tested, be quiet. Because a whole lot of people heard someone on some TV show and they want to tell you to live your life that way. God works in different people in different times in different ways, and we don't know. And so we have to hear. So Susan and I were listening for a word for us. We couldn't, her life, we could not depend her life on someone else's testimony. We hear what was God saying to us? And what I felt like the Lord said to us is, uh, get, a, get, get around the prophetic people, which I was not familiar with, people with prophetic people, and, and, and look for a word that tells you whether you should stop the chemo or not. We went, we went up to Toronto, we went to all these charismatic Pentecostal places. We had many, many prophetic words from people of God who were legit, and they told us all kind of funny things. I was dressed not as nice as Brent, but I was dressed like, like Brent. I didn't have a tie on like Dion, but, but I was dressed like that in a big meeting in Toronto with several thousand people, and I had prophets come up to me and say, uh, you're like a Presbyterian Catholic. Well, Anglicans are Reformed Catholics. I mean, they said crazy, and I wasn't wearing a collar. I, I mean, they told us all kinds of things that only God could know. They didn't know us from anybody. We'd never been to Toronto before. We'd never met them before. But nobody gave us a word to stop using the medicine. If we had gotten a word, stop using the medicine, we would have been thrilled to. We had seen people heal of cancer. Who wouldn't want to go through it and not have the chemo and radiation? Anybody would. We knew God could do it. But we can't live on someone else's testament. What is God saying to us? And we never got that word. Now, we tried not to be rude as much as you wanted to smack someone who's telling you their testimony they heard on the TV show. You know, that's, that, that was very annoying, but I knew they didn't mean bad, so we held our tongues. There are people all over the place who are bluffing, who are saying words from God, and it's not a word from God. You gotta, how do you tell the difference? You can't at the beginning. You've got to watch. Some of you know Father Nahum Beard, who's a medical doctor. and uh, you know, I thought that guy was the most ridiculous guy in the world. He'll be listening to my sermon up in Memphis. and uh, I mean, he, he was so crazy. He was in med school. He was so smart, but he was so weird. And I mean, I was like, what is up with this guy? But everything he told me for about three years came true, and all of it was ridiculous. But I mean, even I, who didn't even believe in that kind of stuff, was like, there's something crazy about Nahum. Some of you are smiling because you know him. I'm like, as weird as he is. I learned that just because I hadn't done it before, I never saw it, didn't mean it wasn't true because God showed me over and over and over again. So if Nahum called me up and said, Ron, blah, blah, I'd be listening. But I don't just listen because people say God said. Who's been tested? Who's walked with God? Who knows uh, the fire's been up high enough that we've been stripped away all of our false confidence and all our self-glorifying and all of our pride and, and our uh, thinking that we're so gifted. There are people like Gideon out here, and some of you are those people. You've been tried. You know what it is to flinch. You know you're not perfect. You know your faith's not enough. 
but you know God has spoken. Those are the people that are such precious people to people who are struggling going through it. Real people. So the old story of ministers, they say, don't trust anybody that doesn't walk with a limp. Don't trust those people whose testimony is, I've always, everything's gone good for me. They're not telling the truth. That's, you won't find anyone in the Bible like that. Even Jesus didn't sin. What happened? The less you sin, what happens? The more trouble you get. So there are these people that say all this stuff, they're not. You, but you watch, you pay attention, and you see. What happens? Does God answer their prayers or not? Francis Chan says this beautiful story about his daughter, and she was, uh, this boy was interested in her. This is some years ago. I saw it on YouTube. He can say a whole lot in five minutes, but I can't. But anyway, Francis Chan said, he said, my daughter came and he said, uh, so are you serious about this boy or not? And, he, and she said, no, daddy, I'm not. And uh, she says, but I'm watching him. And he said, what are you watching? He said, I'm watching to see if Jesus answered his prayers. I become friends with him while I'm dating him. I'm looking to see, does God hear his prayers? He said, I know that when you pray, God hears your prayers. I know that when his wife, whatever her name is, prays. He said, that's what I'm looking for. I need a man that when he prays, God hears his prayers, and I'm watching to see if he's that kind of guy. And if he's that kind of guy, then he could be the right guy. That's the people we're supposed to be. We're not, remember, Gideon, all kind of doubt, all kind of struggle, all kind of testing. You're not outside of the loop because you're imperfect, because your faith isn't perfect. That's not what it takes. It takes being willing to let God teach you along the way, saying yes to him, stepping out in obedience, doing the little steps, and the big things will come. This is a church like that. I felt so encouraged. I, I, I was praying this morning. I wanted to cry because I thought, you know what? We're not even 300 people here. But there's a whole lot of people who have stuck with it. Many of you are praying for things that you haven't seen that breakthrough yet. But you're here and you're, you're coming and you're taking those steps and, and you're growing and, and beautiful things are happening. And I thought, oh, how wonderful. How wonderful. It's, I mean, how many did Jesus need? I mean, Gideon needed 300. Jesus needed 12. We're way above that. We probably have 12 times what Jesus needed. We're in business. Our imperfections, our doubts aren't the problem. Gideon treaded water along the way. He sought the Lord. He interacted with the Lord, and then he obeyed the Lord, and God honored him. God is honoring you in your prayers. Some of you, you have prayed for spouses, for children. You have seen answers through the years. You have fought for them. You have held on to things. Some of you are in the mixing bowl or the meantime. I've got some, I have so many prayers that God's answered, but I have so many prayers where I'm in the meantime, where I'm treading water and I'm waiting. I'm not faking it till I make it. I'm just knowing everything that God has promised doesn't happen just like this. I have some things I have to wait. Some things that, you know, I'm changing, the world's changing. However it works, I can't explain. Why is it taking so long? I feel like the Lord told me years ago, though. He said, it's not taking so long. If you could see what you are facing, you'd understand how big the wall is that's coming down. You don't realize how big the wall is. That's what I feel like he told me. That brought me some comfort. And then I go back to whining, I mean, personally. But Now, I want you to stand this morning, and I want to pray for you this morning. I think we got a wonderful church full of Gideons. We've got our fears, we've got our struggles, but here we are nonetheless.
Lord Jesus, we love you. Surely, Lord, our testimony is not that we have it all together. It's not that we understand everything or, or that our faith is perfect and uh, super strong all the time. But Lord, we've got a bunch of people who have dared to have unreasonable expectations. They're holding on because you're the living God and you've made promises. And like Abraham, hope against hope, with their backs against the wall, they know there's no other option but to hold on to the Lord. And Lord, you're so pleased and you're so proud. Would you speak your affirmation, your encouragement? Lord, would you honor them with your power, with the transformation? Lord, they've been waiting. Lord, you've been listening. We ask you, Lord, open up the windows of heaven. Let your holy presence come, Lord. Terror for some and grace and redemption for others, Lord. Oh, we pray. We've got some real mountains that we've got to take, Lord, and, and we just ask you, Lord. Oh, Holy Spirit, come. Oh, take us fuller and deeper as you test us, as you strip away the, the, the bluffing and the silly stuff and the immaturity and the thinking that we knew everything. As you strip all that away, Lord, pour in your Spirit. Make us the people that you want us to be. We ask these things because you're such a great, great God. It's unreasonable to anyone that knows us to think we could really change. Oh, but Jesus, make us like Jesus. It's in your word, and we say yes. Have your way. We pray these things, and we thank you in advance in the most wonderful, the most beautiful name, the name of Jesus, and in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.